Good morning. What we're doing now is uh, turning in our Bibles to the back of the Older Testament, to the book of Zechariah, uh, where in chapter 12, we have the opportunity now to further explore this whole idea of the return of Jesus Christ. Now, as you're turning there, some quick review. When we look back over the prior weeks, what we found is that in verses 1 through 9, Jerusalem is described as being under siege. There's an attack here being launched. It seems as though its enemies have, have created a circle and they are encroaching upon the precincts of Jerusalem. What we find here in today's passage is that you're moving from the externals that were described in the prior verses to what I would describe now as the internals of these verses. The externals have to do with how the enemies are, are circling Jerusalem. What I want you to now see is how God is working inwardly in the hearts of the people of Jerusalem. Furthermore, if you're turning there, what I want you to be able to understand is that 22 times in this section, reference is made to Jerusalem. If you want a focal point, if you want a starting point, if you want a center to be able to understand something with regard to the second coming of Jesus Christ, there is one term that ought to be central to your thought process. It's Jerusalem. Not Washington, D.C., not London, not Tehran, not Moscow, Jerusalem. What is fascinating is that when you look at Jerusalem as it relates to the two comings of Jesus Christ, rebellion was the distinguishing factor of the first coming. Restoration is the theme of the second coming. Jesus Christ, upon his return, takes the very setting which was mocked by rebellion against him, sending him to the cross to die for our sins, and takes that center, that setting, that place of rebellion, and turns it into a place of restoration. That is what the two comings share in common with the word Jerusalem. So I'd like to begin reading in verse 10. We're in chapter 12. We'll take it down through chapter 13, verse 1, and try to understand still further what the second coming is all about. Now, after the enemies have circled Jerusalem and they're making their way inward, and their efforts are being thwarted, something is happening inside in the hearts of the Israelites. Verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And we bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. 
On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning of Hadar Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the Shumites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, their wives by themselves. And on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. So what we want to do now, Lord, is to pull together the relationship between the first coming of our Lord and the second coming of our Lord. We are awed by the way in which you, the sovereign one, turn rebellion into restoration. Those opposed to Jesus Christ were at the same time part and parcel of the plan that you had established in eternity past whereby in their very opposition, they took the one we know as Savior and Lord to the cross to die in our place for our sins. You used the rebellion as a means of securing our salvation. And then astoundingly, you choose the same place in which rebellion was enacted against your ultimate authority to bring Jesus Christ back, same place. And the place of rebellion becomes the place of restoration. And we are awed as we see how the two comings of Christ converge in this master plan. And how simultaneously you take the externals of the threat that the inhabitants of Jerusalem face and weave them into uh, the matters of the internal where they realize they cannot, they cannot in and of themselves survive without your grace. And then you enact your master plan. So Father, we are processing your master plan of the ages. We want to see how the two comings converge and how this relates not only globally but also at the same time, how this relates so personally to the one who's hurting, to the one who seems so distant from you, to the one who's looking for a new beginning in life. They are now in worship form coming before the one who brings new beginnings through new birth in Jesus Christ. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We're listening, Father. 
have come here now to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Billy Graham, in his book, World of Flame, whenever he spoke of the second coming of Jesus Christ, this story was never far from his thought process. Where he describes when former President Eisenhower was vacationing in Denver. And in the local region of Denver, there was a little boy, six years of age, named Paul Haley, who was facing incurable cancer but had expressed a wish in, in the news reports of wanting to be able to see the President of the United States should he ever come to Colorado. Well, Eisenhower was made aware of this, and so early one morning in the month of August, there was this great big limousine that pulled up just outside the Haley home. And he outstepped President Eisenhower. And he walked up to the door and he knocked in the early morning hours. Well, little Paul Haley's dad and mom came to the door and Mr. Haley opened the door as reporters around with the cameramen present began to take endless amounts of pictures and Mr. Haley was blinking his eyes because he and his wife have just gotten out of bed. And they looked the part. And there they stood, utterly astounded, as the President of the United States leaned forward and began to talk with little Paul. Whereby then the President and Paul went off to the street, and there they stood in front of the limousine and photographers were continuing to take pictures, not only the president and Paul, but also for the pictures of Paul's parents, to their chagrin. And after this conversation, Paul, with this great big smile on his face, shook hands with the president, and uh, the president headed off, and Paul went up to his parents, embraced. Meanwhile, the photographers stayed at hand and continued to take pictures, and then one of the reporters came up and asked him, asked the father, what he thought of all this. And I said, hmm, I was not prepared <laughs> to meet the President of the United States. It's an extraordinary image of globally the whole matter of being prepared or unprepared to meet the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But you see, God is sovereign over the timing of all events. And so you and I, when we spend time, invest time, for example, in Ezekiel chapters 37 and 38 and 39, and we ponder the significance that in 1948, the Jews regained statehood after being dispelled from their land in 70 AD this just does not happen. And that in and of itself would be enough to want someone to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And then through a series of wars being fought, they have retained and expanded on their geography, their territory. 
Then we watch very carefully Hamas's involvements, and then we consider Hezbollah and the way in which the Iranians have been financing the threats. And then furthermore, you and I take one step back even more so, and we ask ourselves, okay, Joe Rosenberg, Gary right now is reading The Persian Gamble. What's the relationship in all this between, say, Russia, known as the matter of Gog and Magog and Ezekiel, Iran, which is ethnically related to Russians, and furthermore, North Korea, being financed by Iran. How does all this work? And where does all this lead? Now, the thinking Christian, then, is looking for on-ramps to be able to carry on conversations with people that are mystified by what is happening globally. But God demystifies these things. He takes timeless truths and communicates them in timely ways. And so, out of verses 1 through 9, after you're dealing with the encircling of the Israelites, now beginning in verse 10 through chapter 13 and verse 1, he moves from the outward to the inward and wants to talk about what is happening in the hearts and the minds and the souls of those, the inhabitants of this land. So I want to draw out now three aspects of the second coming that are related to verses 10 of chapter 12 through verse 1 of chapter 13. Three aspects. See how it relates to the times in which we live. Out of verse 10, as you and I as we consider our Lord's second coming, I want to begin here by noting with you the grace to be experienced. Notice how it begins. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Now, when you couple that with how chapter 13, verse 1 begins, you get a sense that what God is now using is some form of liquid imagery to communicate his sovereign plan. I will pour out. There is this outpouring now that is occurring but this outpouring, and if you have walked in the land of Israel and entered into the streets of Jerusalem, you begin to process what is being described next. And this outpouring is upon the house of David. And that speaks of the Jewish population, of course. But then furthermore, he takes it one step further and goes on to say, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He does not say the Jewish population of, Israel, of Jerusalem. And now I pause at that point, having walked those streets with those in our tour group, and I ask, and how can this be? And the answer again is that Jerusalem is divided into four quarters. There is the Muslim quarter. There is the Christian quarter. There is the Armenian quarter, and there is the Jewish quarter. Not sizable, by the way, in proportion to, say, the Muslim quarter, interestingly enough. Now, when you look very carefully at the wording, 
God is saying, I'm going to pour out on the house of David, that's the Jews. But then he says, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In other words, we've got four quarters being covered here. Now, he wants us then to be able to understand the demographics. This is not Jew, it's Jew and Gentile. This is a global phenomenon happening in a local setting. That and that alone should awe us. But then he, he takes us still one step further. And we ask ourselves, and what is this outpouring anyways that's being described here? And the answer is, it is a spirit of grace. Now, grace in our scriptures is unmerited favor. Jew and Gentile alike is not, are not able to say, um, Christ will return and he'll be excited to see me because I'm basically a good guy or a good lady. Because there is none who are righteous. No, not one, the Apostle Paul were right. Nor can I argue on the basis of my good works as being the inspiration for his return. What he is saying is that, Gary, you do not merit this. Gary, you do not deserve this. The return of Jesus Christ, the second coming, is cloaked in the same theology as the first coming. It's a matter of grace. I will pour out on the house of David, Jew, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that's encompassing now everyone, Jew and Gentile, taking into account the four quarters of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace. And that's your Lord at work. Ruth Bell Graham, in her book, Prodigals and Those Who Love Them, writes, while attending Wheaton College, one of my roommates, Kimberly, and I would be talking about grace all day long. As we would head off to the campus, six blocks away, we would sing his loving kindness to him. And in the evenings, when we walked home, we would sing, Great is thy faithfulness. And the idea came to us from Psalm 92, verse 2, which is mocked by grace, quote, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night. And in her journal, she wrote down one word, grace. It's all of Grace. Not to be outdone when Louis Jaffer was reaching the final stages of his ministry at Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas in May of 1951, where a small class of graduating students were sitting around the school's president, listening to him deliver his last lecture from a wheelchair. At the end of the class, we're told the elderly man, very near death, reached into his pocket, pulled out his handkerchief, 
wiped the perspiration from his face. He had just finished his final lecture on his favorite subject, the grace of God. Retold the chief, he closed his eyes, his tears came, and his last words to that graduating class were these, quote, gentlemen, for half my life I have been teaching the grace of God, but I am just beginning to understand it. And men, it is magnificent. It is magnificent. Those were the last words they recall him uttering. I want you to now see the magnificence of what is being described. There is this outpouring, not trickling, a true outpouring. It's not only on the house of David, it says, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the four quarters. This outpouring involves a spirit of grace, unmerited favor, and it leads then sequentially to pleas for mercy. Because you've got to bear in mind, they are still encircled, they are still threatened by everything that is happening around them. The question is now, what's going to happen? Where does this lead? How will God work? What is his plan of action? Well, this leads then to the second aspect. If the first pertain to the grace to be experienced in the first part of verse 10, the second aspect regarding our Lord's second coming is the mourning to be expressed in the second part of verse 10 on through verse 14. So now, Stay with me. It now reads, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. When they look upon whom they have pierced, what comes to your mind? When John is recording his experience at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, one of the soldiers pierced Christ's side with a spear, and once there came out blood and water. He goes on to write, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, quote, they will look on him whom they have pierced. What John was doing then was that he was connecting Zechariah chapter 12 with what he has personally been witnessing there and describing in John chapter 19. Where are you, Thomas? We need you. So Thomas, one of the 12, in the next chapter, called the twin, he came. Jesus did, not Thomas. 
He revealed himself as the one who has been raised from the grave. But he is raised from the grave with all the mockings of being the pierced one. Now Thomas appears and he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of his nails, place my finger in the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. Hmm. Jesus takes his time. God has a way of doing that with us, you know. But eight days later, you and I are informed by John, his disciples were inside. Thomas was with them this time. And though the doors were locked, Jesus stood among them, said, peace be with you. And then he must have had some insider info because he, he narrows his focus upon Thomas. And as he narrows his focus upon Thomas, he says to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not believe, disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. This soul impressed the heart and the mind of the Apostle John, they not only records these matters in the Gospel of John, but furthermore, in Revelation of chapter 1, he informs us regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who, what, pierced him. His glorified body is a pierced body. This is astounding in what you and I would observe being in his presence someday before the Lord if we know Jesus is our Lord and as our Savior. And then we pull together with what was promised in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, chastisement that, that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And now here are the people looking upon Christ, upon his return. And they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one who weeps over a firstborn. My past became my prison. Love was waiting with the key. My story was my failure. Now my story is redeemed. My freedom's written in your nail-scared hands. Where there was sin, once sin and shame, the cross now stands. The grave no longer tells me who I am because my freedom's written in your nail-scarred hands. And they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, and Zechariah is penning this centuries before Christ hit the ground running 
moving from Bethlehem to Calvary. Shall look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And now, because the place of rebellion becomes the place of restoration, we now find that once again, the, the writer wants to emphasize it's on that day. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rahman in the plain of Megiddo. Megiddo? You say, Gareth, where's that? Let's take a peek. Now, if you join me and we make our way to Israel, let's let things settle down a bit, okay? Before we get there. But... Once we do, we'll arrive at Bengarian Airport, and now you've got this map in hand. And so there you see where the Gaza Strip is. We'll probably start off in Tel Aviv, make our way northward slightly to Jaffa, but head on furthermore to Caesarea. And from Caesarea then, we're going to inch somewhat eastward towards the setting known as Megiddo. Megiddo is the setting for what will eventually be known as Armageddon. So we're looking at that setting and pondering what's there. You pulled out your map, you're processing. And now you take in the sight. Look at the visuals that appear on the screen. So they're standing at what will eventually be the epicenter of Armageddon. And there's an aerial view to your left, and now a ground-level view to your right. Your tour could very well uh, take some steps down beneath and allow you to process all that's taking place at ground level. And you're utterly awed by how God has allowed for the archeological finds throughout the years to support what it is that's being written in both Older Testament and Newer Testament alike. But as you do so, maybe your mind goes back to something found in 2 Chronicles 35. Because it was in that very site you see, where the last of the great kings of Judah, Josiah, decided to go to war against the king of Egypt, Necho. And where did they fight? In the plain of Megiddo, Second Chronicles 35. And some archers shot King Josiah. He was wounded. His servants took him by chariot out and back to Jerusalem where he died, was buried in the tombs of his fathers. And we are told that all Judah and Jerusalem mourn for him. Now, the Jews have this as their historical reference point. So you are told on that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning of Hadar Rahman in the plain of Megiddo. It's the morning not only looking back what occurred, the king named Josiah, but transporting us forward to the ultimate battle, Armageddon in Revelation chapter 16, where this is described as well. 
what then does he do with all this? How does he better prepare us mentally to be able to process the information he's providing? Beginning in verse 12 through verse 14, I want you to notice the various distinguishing aspects of, of the mourning that's occurring in the land. Where in verse 12, each shall mourn, each family by itself. And you begin to ask, but Gary, why does he break it down this way? The family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves. Answer, that is the royal family, the kingly family. Then it says the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. That's the prophetic family, Nathan. Verse 13, the family of the house of Levi by itself, their wives by themselves. And that's the priestly family. And now, what have you got here? Folks, you've got prophet, priest, and king. The sum total of this strategy unfolding before your very eyes. And then he uses a summarizing approach to make sure nobody is left out in this understanding. The Shimeites by themselves and their wives by themselves and all the families that are left, each by itself, their wives by themselves. And we get a better understanding then of what it is that God is saying and God is doing among these people and their response where the spirit of grace leads then to this mourning being expressed. In the late 19th century, there was this Russian Jew. His name was Joseph Rabinovich, and he was sent to Palestine by the Jews to buy land for them there. They wanted to return to their homeland. Uh, we're told that he went to Jerusalem, and one day he went up to the Mount of Olives to rest. Someone had told him to take a New Testament as the best guide as a book about Jerusalem. The only Christ, the biography states, that he knew was that of Christ, the Greek and Roman churches, who he viewed as their persecutors. He couldn't distinguish, you see, between Christendom and Christianity. Most of the news today can't either. He looked toward Calvary and thought, why is it that my people are persecuted? and have been throughout all the centuries. We told his heart gave him the answer, it must be because our Messiah was put to death there. He lifted his eyes to that Messiah and said, sound familiar? My Lord, my God. We told he came down from the Mount of Olives is a follower of Jesus Christ. Went back to Russia, erected a synagogue for the Jews there, but over the door of the synagogue were these words, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom we have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Acts 2 verse 36. 
So now what God is doing is that he, in his second coming, is taking what I will call the place of rebellion and turning it into the place of restoration. This is grace, grace at work. Now the grace to be experienced in verse 10 has led to the mourning to be expressed in the second part of verse 10 through verse 14, which leads thirdly to the cleansing to be expected in chapter 13 of verse one. And in chapter 13, verse one, you and I are told on that day, Again, this is the day of the Lord. So now, Zechariah, his favorite expression to describe that future day of the Lord's return. On that day, there shall be a fountain, a fountain opened, a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Does not say, and the Jews of Jerusalem, exclusively. He's tying together now verse 10 of the prior chapter with verse one of the 13th chapter. He is now saying Jew and Gentile alike, come to the fountain. Give me your heart, give me your song, sing it with all your might. Come to the fountain and you can be satisfied. There's a peace, there's a love you can get lost inside. Come to the fountain and let me hear you testify. You need to breathe. And what's the purpose of it all? Here it comes. To cleanse them from sin and unrighteousness. And what is utterly fascinating to me is that before there is the restoration of the land, which will be covered next week, there needs to be the restoration of the people, which is being described today in these verses. And what there has to be is a cleansing, a cleansing second to none that comes through the work of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You pull that together then, and now you've got a thorough understanding of how the inward and the outward relates to this whole matter of how rebellion is turned into restoration, all within one epicenter, a strategic setting that God has ordained in eternity past. Jerusalem, ground zero for God's plan for all of humanity. So you pull that together, and with a smile on your face, you think back to the story of the President of the United States pulling up to the Haley home. Well, you see, only one member of the home was truly anticipating the arrival. It was little Paul. But there's a knock on the door, and the door opens up, and there's the parents that are looking anything but presentable. As pictures are being taken, and little Paul is all excited, and Dwight eyes and Harleen's over and shakes hands with little Paul. 
They go out to the limousine for a little conversation, just one-on-one. And then afterwards, when the reporters, when the reporters ask Mr. Haley what his response was to this entire event, he simply said, I wasn't ready. And people, the purpose of the series is to give us on-ramps so that people who are wondering with why is the world in the condition that it's in and what is going on globally, let alone in the land of Israel. We've got intelligent responses and the result is when they put faith and trust in Jesus, they're ready. Let's stand together. This is rich, Father. Pundits talk about in geopolitics, but there is also geoprophecy that's tied to geopolitics. And so we need to understand not only the demographics of Jerusalem internally, but also the political trends externally. Why is there such growing anti-Semitism globally? How does this relate to the second coming of Jesus Christ? And how does all this fit together in the whole idea of the epicenter of Jerusalem where our Lord, through the combination of first and second comings, transforms rebellion into restoration. If there's anyone, Father, here today, prior service, those watching online, that feels so distant, it's time for them to come home. Time to come to the fountain. They'll be satisfied. And we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.